Part One of Chapter Six of Our Search for a Wilderness by Mary Blair Beebe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Gold Mine in the Wilderness. We loaded our tin canisters, clothing bags, guns, and cameras on a cart which was waiting and set out along the bush trail three and a half miles to the gold mine. The trail led through a great swampy forest with a clear brook occasionally crossing it, and for the sake of the wagon which had to transport all the supplies, it was corduroyed in the worst places with small saplings and quartered trunks. We had all donned cheap tennis shoes, which proved on this and all later occasions to be perfect footwear for the tropics. The rubber soles allowed one to obtain sure footing in slippery places, and a wetting matters nothing. If one walks far enough, the shoes dry on one's feet, or at camp a new pair may be slipped on in a moment, and next day the old ones are none the worse for the soaking. Here, snake-proof and waterproof shoes are as useless as they are uncomfortable. It was amusing to see how quickly the regard for mud and water left even those of our party who were taking their first dip into the real bush. For the first few yards, all picked their way carefully. There was even a pair of storm rubbers leaving its checkered print on the forest mold. Then someone stepped on the loose end of a corduroy sapling, which rose in air and fell with a sharp spat. Everyone dodged the shower of mud and straight away went over ankles in water. The cool fluid trickled between our toes and we all laughed with relief. The rubbers found an early grave in the mud hole, and we all strode happily along, wishing we had a hundred eyes to see all that was going on around and above us. A perfect medley of calls and cries came from the treetops high overhead as we tramped along. In places the trees were magnificent, looking like a maze of columns in some great cathedral roofed over with a lofty dome of foliage. On this first walk, the final impression was of a host of strange sights and sounds, a few of which we were able to disentangle on succeeding days. We had poured over Waterton, Schaumburg, and Bates, but we realized anew the utter futility of trying to reconstruct with pen and ink the grandeur and beauty and forever and always the mystery of a tropical forest. Then from the heart of the wilderness we came suddenly upon man's handiwork, the tiny twenty-acre clearing of the gold mine. On the outskirts of the forest were the frail, frond-roofed shelters which marked the homes of the Indians and the rough mud and thatch huts of the black laborers. A dam was thrown across the narrow valley, and on the rim of the jungle lake thus made was the powerful electric engine. The great thing of vibrating wheels and pistons seemed strangely out of place in the wilderness. As we watched, it seemed to take on a semblance of dull life. Stolid-faced, naked Indians fed it vast quantities of cordwood, 
and in return it sucked up a great pipeful of water from the lake. The pipe lay quietly on trestles, winding up and around a low hill out of sight, giving no hint of the terrific rush of water within. Following the pipeline, we turn a sudden corner on the hilltop, and the heart of the clearing lies at our feet. At the end of the pipe, far below, a man stands, barely able to guide and shift the mighty spout of water which gushes forth. Half the hill has been torn away by the irresistible stream, which shoots upward in a majestic column and dashes with a roar over the cliff of clay and rubble. The ever-widening gorge which the water has eaten into the hill glows in the sunlight with bright-colored strata. On each side the red clay is dominant, while between runs the strip of pale gray which holds the precious nuggets. It is an ochreous clay carrying free gold. The rock is in place and perfectly decomposed to a depth of 75 or 100 feet. This decomposition is the result of the constant infiltration of warm rains carrying carbonic acid and humus acids from the rapidly decaying tropical vegetation. Through the clay are scattered nodules of impure limonite. In a tumbling, falling mass, the muddy water washes backward upon its path, confined in a trough under the pipe, and as it goes it gives up its yellow burden. As the grains and nuggets drop to the bottom, they touch the mercury, and, behold, to the eye they are no longer gold, but silver. As we had been impressed by the grandeur of the forest, so we now begin to see the romance of the wonderful gold, deep hidden beneath the centuries of jungle growth. Gold, which we had known only in form of coin or ring, now assumed a new beauty and meaning. Here amid the great trees, the beautiful birds and insects, the Indians as yet unspoiled by civilization, one could thoroughly enjoy such, quotes, money-making. One hears of gold mines all one's life, but until one actually sees the metal taken from its resting place, where it has laid since the earth was young, the word means but little. Beyond the golden gorge with the roaring little giant, ever filling it with spray, was a second hill topped with the bungalow which we were to call home. Beyond this the jungle began again. After a delicious shower bath we slung our hammocks on the veranda and sat on the hillside in the moonlight for an hour or more watching the night shift at work, one or two men guiding the stream beneath flickering arc lights, others puddling the downrushing torrent. Just beneath us in the dark shadow of a bush lay the coolly night watchman with the inscrutable face of his race keeping watch over the long snaky flume at the bottom of which the quicksilver was ever engulfing the precious metal later we slept the dreamless hammock sleep of the tropics lulled by the dull droning roar of the water dashing against the clay a sound which echoed through the jungle and gained in volume until we drowsily knew we were listening to the howling of the red baboons. Even this invasion of man 
merged harmoniously with the sounds of the wilderness life about the bungalow we remained at hoorie just seven days only long enough to begin to look beneath the surface and realize what a veritable wonderland it was for scientist or nature lover on the last day of our stay we wrote in our journal hoorie is a perfect health resort temperature good no mosquitoes food excellent splendid place for laboratory work interesting insect life super abundant birds and lizards abundant snakes rare peri electric eels and manatees in the creek peccary deer red howlers armadillos sloths and anteaters within short distance of bungalow what more could be asked the bungalow was a well-built house with wide veranda perched on the cleared summit of a low hill sloping evenly in all directions the thick bush and scrubby undergrowth beginning about one hundred feet down the hillside we shall not attempt to describe or even mention the many varieties of creatures which haunted the clearing but leaving these for our scientific reports we shall speak only of those which are especially interesting when one enters a vast forested wilderness such as this and makes a good-sized clearing the inmates of the forest are bound to be affected the most timid ones flee at the first stroke of the axe others swayed by curiosity return again and again to watch the interlopers a third class learning somehow of the new settlement come post haste and make themselves at home these are chiefly birds which seldom or never found living in the heart of the jungle are as keen as vultures to spy out a new clearing they must follow the canoes in trail else it is impossible to imagine how they learn of new outposts whether a simple indian hammock shelter and cassava field or a great commercial undertaking such as this gold mine to begin with the birds the hoori clearing possessed two pairs of blue three pairs of palm and five pairs of silver-beak tanagers besides six blue-backed seed-eaters none of these are forest birds and all nest in brushy places the blue tanagers are clad in delicate varying shades of pale blue the palm tanagers in dull olive green but both make up in noisy sibilant cries what they lack in color the silver beaks are beautiful shading from rich wine color to black and with conspicuous silvery blue beaks the little seed eaters were the most familiar birds about the bungalow coming to the steps to feed on fallen seeds one of the first things which caught our eye were several brilliantly iridescent green birds insect catching among the brush near the house these were paradise jacamars and they had their homes in the clay banks of the rivulets deep buried in the narrow valleys which abounded in the forest each bird had two or more favorite twigs when bug hunting flagged at one post they flew with a long swoop to the second point of vantage our assistant crandall observing this 
laid a limed twig across the lookout perch and in a short time had caught two male birds. Their mates called loudly for a time, then disappeared. Before night, both had returned with new mates, which we left in peace. They were tame and allowed us to approach within eight or ten feet before flying to their alternate perches. Their feet are small and weak, and they have a hunched-up look as they perch in weight turning the head rapidly in every direction and now and then swooping like a flash after some tiny insect, engulfing it with a loud snap of the mandibles. Their call note is a sharp repeated pip, 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 pip. These birds welcome the clearing as it means an increased supply of insect food. They learn the value even of the opening made by the fall of a single tree deep in the jungle. And here and elsewhere we notice that a single pair of jacamars would keep busy day after day in the patch of sunlight let in by the death of some forest giant. Jacamars form a rather compact group of some twenty species, inhabit like flycatchers, in appearance and nest like kingfishers, but in structure more closely related to toucans and woodpeckers. Even in the short time which we spent at Hoori, we learned to expect a regular daily movement on the part of many of the birds. Early each morning, a flock of about a dozen splendid jays worked slowly around the edge of the clearing, at last disappearing behind the bungalow into the woods. In the north, this would not be an unusual sight, but it must be remembered that members of the jay family, like the wood warblers, are rarely seen in the tropics. Crows and ravens are entirely absent from South America, and but two species of jays find their way into British Guiana. Our hurry birds were lavender jays, and although so far from the home of their family, they were no whit the less jay-like. They constantly hailed each other with a varied vocabulary of harsh cries and calls, and now and then held a morsel of food between the toes and pounded it vigorously. They flapped but seldom, passing with short sailing flights from branch to branch, not far from the ground. At night, they returned rather more rapidly, less absorbed in feeding, probably to some roosting place of which they alone knew. With them, night and morning, were a few red-backed bunyas or caciques, early nesters from the colony at the dam, of which more anon. The two species seemed to associate closely, although it was evident that it was the bunyas which had taken up with the sturdy pioneers from the north. A short distance away from the bungalow, a huge mora stood in the forest, looking down on all the trees around. The lightning bolt which had torn off its bark and killed it had also consumed its dense clothing of parasitic vines and bush ropes. So now it stood with naked, clean wood high above the sea of foliage, and within a day after our arrival, we had christened it the Toucan Mora. In the evening, about on the stroke of seven, 
the first comers would arrive a trio of black banded aracaris which alight and preen their feathers these may remain quiet for about twenty minutes but more often take to flight at the approach of a screaming flock of eight or ten mealy amazon parrots which scatter over the branches but the other species of toucans are now awake and soon the parrots are in turn driven off and four or five big-billed fellows usurp the dead mora and sun themselves or call loudly to the vultures swinging high overhead there are two species of these larger toucans the red-billed and the sulphur and white-breasted and they seem to live together amicably but war with the smaller aracaris the notes of the red-billed toucans are like the yapping of a puppy uttered in pairs and differing slightly thus yap yip yap yip the great mandibles are opened and thrown upward at each utterance the brilliant white-breasted birds call loudly kyok kyok in a high shrill tone very unlike that of their fellows morning and evening the toucans and parrots pass always alighting on the dead mora while during the day we detect them deep in the jungle feeding in the tops of the trees and sending down to us their calls yap kyok or squawk as the case may be a fourth species the red-breasted toucan was occasionally seen high in the treetops these birds had two distinct utterances one a frog-like croak and the other a double-toned shrill cry the two tones being b and b sharp above middle c early in the evenings about six o'clock all the banded swallows of the surrounding region passed overhead in a dense flock two or three hundred in all soaring with a steady half-sailing flight very different from the dashing swoops which carry them over the lake when feeding during the day now they are headed northward to some safe roosting place and with no thought of passing gnats the myriads of graceful glossy blue forms each crossed on the breast with a band of white make a most beautiful sight in the morning their return flight was by twos and threes with rapid darts here and there hunger now permitted no dressing of ranks or close formation during the day none were to be seen about the bungalow but only on the lake or along the creek bed the unfortunate gnats which hummed in the bungalow clearing were attended to by the little feather-toed palm swifts which were most abundant among the hosts of smaller birds which haunted the treetops at the edge of the clearing the black-faced green grosbeaks were especially noticeable in color they reminded one of immature male orchid orioles being yellowish green with black throat and face they fed morning and evening on the reddish berries of a great vine which ripened its fruit in the treetops and here their song was repeated over and over a rattling buzz like the rapid stroke of a stick along the palings of a fence followed by three liquid whip-like notes thus high c a b 
the buzz part of the song also did duty as the call note once or twice each day we would be treated to a glimpse of the wonderful pompadour cotingas a flock of four male birds would flash overhead and swing up to some lofty perch wary silent but of exquisite color the whole body was of a brilliant reddish purple rich wine color with wings of purest white silhouetted against the blue sky as they were perched close together they might have been starlings or blackbirds as far as color went but when they all shot off into the air and showed up against the green leaves they fairly blazed their yellow eyes the scintillating purple plumage and the dazzling white wings the last flash of the wings before they were folded out of sight was a most efficient protection as it seemed to hold the vision so that several moments elapsed before the perching bird itself could be located the somber ashy females were not observed certainly they never joined in the flights with the quartet of males in the latter sex a half dozen or more of the greater wing coverts are stiffened and the webs curved around almost into little tubes we know practically nothing of the wild habits of the pompadour cotinga but a most remarkable thing about the color is that by the application of a little heat it turns from deep reddish purple to pale yellow it is rather interesting to compare this with the changing of the purple finch from rose red to yellowish in captivity the chatterers or cotingas form one of the most interesting tropical families of birds and we lost no opportunity of studying closely all which we observed at hoori besides the pompadour cotingas we saw the black-tailed tataira in mexico we had seen a closely related species and here again were the strange frog birds with a little more black on the cap and tail we first observed a pair near the colony of red-backed bunyas in the creek bed but as we were leaving the bungalow for the last time our farewell was made all the harder by discovering that the tatiras had begun to nest in a small dead stub standing alone in the center of the vegetable garden and not twenty yards from the bungalow the birds were having a hard time of it carrying stiff four-inch twigs into a three-inch hole but they were succeeding showing that they knew better than to hold the twig by the center the whole head to below the eyes and including the upper nape was black while the bare skin of the face and the basal two-thirds of the beak were bright red the male was uniformly pale bluish white while his mate was distinguished by many rather faint streaks of black on the breast sides and under parts both birds alternated in carrying the nesting material and in arranging it remaining silent as long as we watched them the nesting stub was about six inches in diameter and the hole thirty feet above the ground these birds lack the bright hues of most of their relatives but have the family trait of possessing some queer trick of plumage 
while the first flight feather of the wing is perfectly normal measuring about three and a half inches in length the second is a mere parody of a feather tapering to a point and reaching a length of less than two inches only the true lover of birds will realize what an effort it took to tear ourselves away from this pair of birds whose eggs and young appear to be as yet undescribed two morile guans and a trumpeter were interesting inmates of the henyard and made no effort to escape although they were full-winged and had the run of the clearing the trumpeter went to roost each night at five thirty as punctually as if he had a watch under his wing he slept standing on one leg resting on the first joints of his front toes his head drawn back under his wing often on our walks we would come across an indian hut so hidden away in the depths of the dense forest that its discovery was merely a matter of chance most of these huts consisted simply of four poles covered by the rudest sort of a palm-thatched roof. The house furnishing was as primitive as the house itself, a hammock for each member of the family, varying in size in proportion to that of their owners, like the chairs of the historic nursery characters, the three bears, one or two calabashes or gourds, several hand-woven baskets of cassava bread, some strips of dried fish, and a smoky fire completed the picture the entire domestic life of these indian establishments went on perfectly openly and quite unaffected by our curious scrutiny we rarely saw the indian men at home they were off hunting or fishing or perhaps employed by the mine as woodcutters the women were always busy cooking planting cassava spinning cotton weaving hammocks and baskets and bead aprons necklaces and bracelets we could never resist the temptation to stop and make friends with them the gift of a cigarette won their hearts and we invariably found them very gentle and kindly their costumes were extraordinary those who had been presented with the garments of civilization proudly wore them though they were nothing more than short loose slips but the majority wore their native dress consisting chiefly of beads certainly far more healthful and suitable for them than the unaccustomed clothing given them by the missionaries the children were lovable little pieces of bronze very smooth and glossy they would often come softly up and slip their small hands in ours looking up at us with shy wonder in one of the huts we watched with amusement the weest of indian girls trying to drive away a huge rooster who was pervading the hut the child could not have been more than two years old but she was already thoroughly feminine waving her small arms valiantly at the intruder and then running away terrified to bury her head in her mother's hammock until she could summon courage for another attack upon the enemy as time went on and news of our arrival spread indians from huts far distant in the forest made expeditions to come and look at us as curious about us as was the small boy living up on the essequibo river 
who saved up his bits and took a long journey down the river to see a horse he had heard there were such creatures but he wished to investigate for himself so tours were made to see us and we were inspected by wondering eyes to whom white women were as strange as were horses to the little bush lad one day at the bungalow we found a group of indian children gathered about the door of the modern bathroom which mr wilshire had fitted up it was all a great puzzle to the little dwellers in the forest to amuse them we took them in and turned on and off the shower bath trying to explain what it was but all to no purpose to them a bath meant knee wash skin in river while the shower bath was merely an interesting scientific phenomenon the mysterious white beings were making rain at their own will we were disappointed at not getting more photographs of the indians their prejudice against being photographed is a deep-rooted superstition they feel that it gives you a superhuman power over them indians often ran like deer through the woods when we pointed the camera at them and it was only by passing around candy to those who came to the bungalow and so diverting their attention from the dreaded camera that we secured any pictures at all we encountered but one poisonous serpent and that one by proxy a big bushmaster or kuanakochi all but dead was brought to the house one day by an indian who had speared it it had been found coiled up on the forest leaves and was so like them in color that the indian had nearly trod upon it although we searched thoroughly we could never find a second specimen end of part one of chapter six